You're listening to a Rock Candy podcast. So let's pivot to some questions. Do you have time for some questions? Yeah, let's from, hear it. From the audience. All right. So so we have a, a fuck ton of different questions, both from Discord and from Twitter. Um, Which so, ones are better? The, what, what, is there a differing quality between Discord and Twitter? Is it like the um, difference between like, I don't know, 4chan and Twitter or something? <laughs> uh, really I, I am personally very proud of my Discord community. I almost never have to break up fights. I... They're all very smart, very mature, treat each other very nicely. They are petitioning me for a porn channel, so I might, I might, I might have to institute that at some point. In general, they're great people. Um, gen- much better than than Twitter because Discord is private and it's only by invitation. And I reign supreme. I am the queen of my Discord server, and I can behead anyone I fucking want. And so. Yeah. Uh, okay. So a question from from uh, Timothy on Discord asks: The tenets of TST were written by only one person. Should they be revisited and examined by more than one person? First of all, is that true? And second it's of not, all, it's okay. not. Okay. 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 They were written by two people. You and Malcolm. Correct. Yeah. Okay. And should they? be revisited and examined by more than i guess in this situation two people well i mean it doesn't matter the the people i guess or the number of them but i guess the arguments put forward you know the, the yeah built into the tenants themselves is the idea that uh, they're open to revision right that we should always uh be available to change our points of view or whatever so you know if it comes to be that uh, there really is a rational consensus that uh there's something that should be updated omitted or added that's that's always a conversation we're available to okay cool and that's really a reason why i I think of something interesting that people probably don't know anymore that's really the reason i rejected the idea of putting the seven tenants on uh our monument um it was proposed that we should put the seven tenants on the Baphomet monument, or at least engraved in the back. And the thinking was, is that uh, it's the wrong message, that this isn't actually etched in stone. We shouldn't worship mm. words that are placed in, in uh, you know, that are, that are etched in permanence like that, that we should always be able to kind of change our viewpoints based upon what we know in real time. Yeah. That's fascinating. So, so kind of along those lines, um, another person on Discord asks. Uh, <laughs> oh, actually, just one thing. Just don't bring up Facebook again. We get it. Facebook sucks. <laughs> one person on Discord. Oh, it's too late. I it's too it. late. It already came up. Um, let's see here. One person says, "Will Lucian be writing our TST Satanic Bible?" Uh, probably not. I mean it's it's likely I'll write something that will kind of be taken that way, but I'm not really interested in writing uh, in writing some pretentious tome that lays down the standards for how one lives and how the Satanist behaves and and you know uh, that kind of thing. I think the the thing I can do now is really put together like a book of essays and write kind of a, a contemporary account of, you know, where we've been and where this came from and that type of thing. And those are the types of things I'm working on. Cool. Uh, now's not really the time. I don't think for a type of manifesto that, uh, that makes these kinds of bold, timeless proclamations because they're again, you know, we're, we're fluid, we're changing, we're, uh, we're open to revision and updating. And I would hate to see what happened to, uh, LeVay happened to the Satanic Temple Absolutely. where like me and Malcolm die and then all of a sudden it becomes this uh, cult of of 
fundamentalism looking back at the, <laughs> at the origins and then never deviating from whatever words were spoken in that time or whatever. I mean, I, I like to think that will always be a community that even if, you know, things progress to a point where if you look back at what we did now and find it uh, hopelessly outdated, uh, it won't matter because we've grown enough, you know, yeah. with or without Malcolm and I and the rest of the founding council and everybody else. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and you know, one of the things that I do get a very strong sense of, it, I don't feel like I have to agree with everything you or Malcolm or other people say in order to be a member, because I really get a sense that it isn't about you. It's about the community. You know, it, it is about, it's about the satanic temple as a community. And it isn't about your particular statements or Malcolm's particular statements. It, it, it isn't about your individual beliefs. And that's something that I really appreciate about TST actually, is I don't have this sense of it's about you. I have a sense that it is about me and the community <laughs> and the members. Well, you, you know, know it's funny. I, I can, you know, we have meetings uh, every Sunday night and, and the, the council does its votes and, uh, I'll be on the council meetings, but I don't take a voting role in the council. So I can give my point of view, uh, but council might vote one way or the other. So and you're so you're like the, the Queen of England. So with with your little dogs and you, it's kind of a checks and balances system. You yeah. know, it, it's 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 something that that keeps us from being you know just some kind of autocracy or whatever. And uh, we'll have our meetings and, and people argue with me, you know, mm. they'll argue that I'm, I'm wrong about things. And I'll talk to friends of mine in the Satanic Temple and they tell me they've been talking with uh, other people who I don't talk with anymore who have left the Satanic Temple or whatever. And nobody tells them not to. And, you Good. know, I'll, we'll argue viewpoints, everything else. And then I'll log on somewhere and see somebody declaring us a cult yes i think if you only knew if you only had any working definition of a cult at all you know that this just does not fit <laughs> and absolutely yeah standards. yes 100 percent. so the devil's angry accountant also known as 80 who we love uh on twitter says I have one question. When are we getting that Satanic Planet album we've been promised? I've been impatiently waiting for it. And then she goes on to say, uh, I also have one comment. I love you both for everything you do for us, which is very sweet of you to say. You guys have really helped us push through one of the worst periods in American history, <laughs> which is very sweet of you to say. Um, so uh, Satanic Planet album. What's, what's the status on that? Yes, well... Well, first off, I'm way familiar with 80. She comes to the, the movie nights, too. Good. And uh, and I, I second that. We love you, 80. Yes, we, and, we uh, love you. You're great. But as for the Satanic Planet album, I mean, no, nobody's more frustrated with uh, slow progress than me. So, yeah, <laughs> it was, I was supposed to get back like five more final mixes for the Satanic Planet album last week. But I don't think the uh, the guy who's mixing it is getting paid anyway, so I can't complain too much. <laughs> but we are in the final mixes stage, and we're almost there. And then after final mixes stage, we can take this to labels, get our label. But my understanding is that after we get a label, and say I would I would say it's at earliest going to be like a month from now that we start shopping for it. Sweet. Once we're picked up by one, I think we've got at least six months before the album can come out. Great. Um, so Heather on Twitter uh, asks if there are any misconceptions people have about you that surprise you. Oh, no. no nothing's going to surprise me at this point. <laughs> Everybody has misconceptions, yeah. But uh, after a while, nothing shocking. It's like uh, I go to events sometimes, you know, chapter events and things like that and sometimes i just look around at what's going on in these rooms i'm invited into and it, it just strikes me at, uh, uh sometimes how little it strikes me 
how normal some of this uh, lifestyle is for me. Yeah. And just how uh, other people's heads would explode if they lived my life for a year or whatever. So um, I think I think in some cases I just hit overload and nothing's going to surprise me anymore. So any misconceptions I see about me are, are not likely to, to surprise me very much. Great. Excellent. Okay. So um, is there anything Ilium Shadows? William Shadows? I'm not entirely sure what your name is, but he asks, or they ask, is there anything that has happened since the temple's founding that has surprised you or greatly exceeded your expectations? The thing, yeah, the, the temple itself has greatly exceeded expectations, I think. Mm. I think I had kind of lofty goals, but they were very pessimistic ones, too. I really thought we had a good shot at uh, redefining the whole uh, religious liberty debate in the United States and that we would, you know, I, I really felt good about our chances for getting people to think again about pluralism and, and real diversity and that type of thing. Mm. But I didn't expect the level of support we gained in the way we did and as fast as we did. And uh, I'm, I'm really happy with the kind of community and support network we've we've developed at this point. And I thought I thought all this stuff could happen, but I didn't think it would happen at this speed. I really thought we had the potential to get where we are, but not as soon as we have gotten there. And, and I'm really happy about that. Um, in, in a lot of ways, this is all played out to a best case scenario. And I would not have had the uh, hubris to imagine eight years ago that we could have had a documentary about us at Sundance. And I would be doing interviews with some members of mainstream media describing what we're doing as inspirational and, mm. uh, and noble. Yeah, definitely. Did you ever foresee or or expect the kind of community that has come up around the satanic temple that i i felt we would get cool. um i did i didn't know we would get it uh in these numbers mm. you know but i i did know from the beginning that there was a real need that we were filling you know that that there was a real point to what we were doing and there were people identifying with uh, the blasphemous imagery and, and satanism who saw things from the perspective that we were coming at it, you know, and, and that I expected, but still, uh, um, the immediate expectations were that it would be far more obscure and countercultural than, than it's, than it is now, um, that, it, that it wouldn't spread as, as widely as it already has. Mm, yeah. Oh, I just saw a really great question. Where did, where was it? Um, so Lucifer Morningstar fan asks, does TST plan to get involved in any way regarding Black Lives Matter or the fight for justice for violence by police against BIPOC? I guess that's how you pronounce that. I know he touched on it briefly a few months ago, but I'm interested if there are any updates. Yeah, we are still developing our uh, Satanic Action Committee that is going to work towards lobbying and legislative reform in the types of things we can we think can really lend some lasting change to this and we're also developing our satanists of color coalition to be blended uh in as part of that uh to to work towards those ends with us because a lot of those a lot of the issues taken on by the satanic action committee will be uh the types of things we think can help stop police brutality and murder and, and you know taking away qualified immunity, looking for that kind of outside oversight uh, towards whichever entity is doing policing, you know, trying to find like the best methods for doing that. And I think, like I said last time, you know, as soon as things, as soon as uh, protests broke out again, people were asking that, you know, we release a statement. And uh, I, I have to say, it's kind of a, a crippling fear when things like this happen, that there's no right way to go about it because i release a statement sometimes on these issues and i'm told rightly in some ways that i'm not the guy to do it because i'm a white guy talking about these these issues or whatever but it, so it'll be nice to have the satanists of color coalition to kind of speak to these things from the from the lens of what it means to be a satanist and, mm. and a person of color that's fantastic and, and how we're going to go about these things 
yeah, and have that kind of consultation. But in this is the part where I might go too far in some people's opinions, but it is a little uh, disheartening to me that people feel the need to come to the Satanic Temple and ask what we're doing with Black Lives Matter. Um, because in one way, you know, Black Lives Matter is a slogan that everybody can get behind. Yes, Black Lives Do Matter, but it's also an organization. And when we're talking about the organization, I think the bigger question is, is what is Black Lives Matter doing for Black Lives Matter? I'm really concerned about uh, the fact that, you know, we were speaking earlier, you know, and I was saying that uh, organizations pop up and they're taking a position that's unquestionably a morally just one, but to the point where nobody can question, you know, either their tactics or or efficiency. And Black Lives Matter pulled in tens of millions of dollars in donations after the George Floyd murder. And I'm still at a loss to see where this is going when it comes to advocating for real solutions to these problems. I'm seeing a lot of statements about creating safe places and stuff like that. But I don't know how that's necessarily trans. I was just looking at their website and, and I'm at a loss to see as to, uh, you know, to how some of this translates into tangible action. It doesn't mean it's not there. It just means that I maybe it's not being uh, effectively conveyed yet. I'm not really seeing the message. I'm not seeing the, the entire agenda in a way that it makes sense to me. Hmm. But uh, it, it does... this organization, and I'm not going to raise money for an organization unless I really know where the money is going and that it's really being used towards the intended ends. I see shitty commentary asking us all the time where our money goes, and I think it's pretty obvious. We don't make a whole lot of money, yeah. but you can still see uh, you know, what we're spending money on if you're looking. You can see that we're litigating these things in the courts, and when we're fundraising for our reproductive rights campaign, we definitely have an idea of where that $100,000 will go. And, you know, once this goes into litigation, uh, I guarantee you, we will have to spend every penny of that. Yeah, as we go into it's it. not fucking cheap. Like, yeah. <laughs> you're, you're not. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, funding these things off of T-shirt sales is, is, uh, is pretty challenging. Right, right. So I, I really do get concerned that people are too easily placated by, mm. by people putting out statements and, and all the rest uh, and, you know, creating a, creating a really nice hashtag that people can get behind to the point where people want to identify with that by giving money to the organization or whatever. But you really do have to start asking what are the most effective tactics to get where we want to be it's not enough to to know where you stand on an issue. Yeah, you, know, I, you also have to have a plan for getting there. I completely agree with that, and I think that in this day and age, in particular, I feel like you know, on, in the age of social media hashtags, I think there are a lot of impotent leftist slash progressive movements that go fucking nowhere while they feel like they are being successful. Twitter, Twitter, like, and you know, this might just be me this might just be me being cynical, but and maybe I'll get in trouble for saying this, but I really think that, for example, the Women's March was a complete failure in that I don't feel like it really enacted any tangible change whatsoever. This broad... Well, also, also, the March for Science. The March for Science was similar. Every, yes, it, it, yes, it, exactly. I, the, the thing is, is, is those kinds of marches, they aren't nothing. You know, they, 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 they do get people to identify with an issue. It really motivates people and, and but generates. It, but a it lot can't of, it can't end there. Like it, there, right, it, there right. has to be another yeah, step right. after that. Right. Exactly. It, it is squandered energy, though, if you if you aren't making specific demands, if you yes. haven't, if you don't have a theory of action, you don't have some roadmap for change. And I, I really don't think that taking the streets to the streets means what it used to. I think. You know, uh, in former times, anybody in the Oval Office would have been really concerned with the fact that there's hordes of people marching out on the streets. We don't have that level of shame in the Oval Office anymore. We <laughs> yeah. don't have that level of concern. We have a, an administration in that really just knows, like, okay, they're going to be out on the street for a while, but they're not asking shit of us. So 
you know, yeah, it, it's it's really no not, not much of a concern now, is it? Exactly. And after a while, after a while, you know, there's the question of whether a whole lot of violence out on the streets or whatever helps Republicans when they're running on a law and order platform. And that's what worries me, too. If you don't have a theory of action, you're not really asking for making tangible demands when you're out on the streets. You, you might just be, uh, after a while, you might just be uh, uh, raising the hackles of the of the normies in, in, in their suburban houses, you know, who are, who are feeling like, oh, well, we need to get the riffraff off the street or whatever. We, you know, we need to we need to vote for law and order or whatever else. So, you know, taking to the street is not an unimportant thing, but it, it's it's squandered energy, I think, if you're not really pushing for, you know, a valid action plan. That's interesting how if there isn't if there isn't an action plan, then if it does spill over into rioting and violence, that that really that that real that can really hurt the cause. So, I'm I'm on the record as as saying, I actually, I think it was on TST TV. I was talking to Jack Maturko, and I, and I was just like, I am pro riot. And, and then it, it wasn't until afterwards that I'm like, let me back up and think about what I just fucking said and process that because I'm not pro riot. No one is. I don't know anyone who is pro riot. But I think what I meant was I want to be able to understand why this happens without necessarily condoning it. If well, that you can makes understand sense. it. You can understand yes. that level of yes. outrage. You that... can understand that people see a guy get murdered for exactly nearly ten minutes out on the street, and and nothing to stop them, and you know they get away with it. And that's one thing. I really do think the cops would have gotten away with it, in Minneapolis, if nobody had rioted and uh, mm, after, yeah, after just murdered George Floyd. That that I think would have would have been a thing. So you can understand that outrage. You can understand that why that rioting took place but to condone it indefinitely you know it's it's after a while less and less people are going to be sympathetic to it less and less people are going to understand where it came from less and less people are going to acknowledge its roots in more and more you know you might see people just exploiting that situation uh just to you know, just just to act badly out on the streets or whatever else, you you just yeah. you just don't know. You know that the whole the whole scene begins to shift and it begins to change, and people's sympathies go elsewhere. Mm. And that's like if you're thinking tactically, you know, it, it's nice to shake people up. You know, have the riots in in the time in the moment where people know exactly where it came from and why. But really, you know, uh, kind of, you know, probably quickly develop your action plan to to see how you stop this from happening again. Yeah. How you resolve these issues and how you have them addressed in such a way that your needs are met. Yeah, definitely. And you know, it it also just brings to mind something that I've been thinking about quite a bit lately, which is there are times when catharsis and strategy are not bedfellows. And I think that that we are very used to instant gratification in the world of social media. We are very used to that instant gratification, that instant dopamine hit with likes and so on. And so, you know, if you say something outrageous on Twitter or if you say something inflammatory, whether it is true or not, you're going to get that that dopamine hit. And I think the reality is very often is that is that. Uh, activism and change requires long-suffering, grueling strategy in a way that is often uncomfortable and very frequently boring. You know, I I think of um I I, I forget where I heard this story, but I think the one of the best examples of this actually is gay rights. You know, gay activists have been doing this for decades, and I feel like a lot of gay activists were really fucking good at identifying specific demands and just hammering those demands for decades. You know, and like one of those demands, I forget where I heard this story, but one of the demands was for Library of Congress to to list gay and lesbian as a genre or as a category in the Library of Congress. Super tiny, fucking boring thing. But when the Library of Congress recognizes gay and lesbian as a category, the subtle cultural shift that takes place 
is huge. And so it was like, here was this specific demand and it was long and it was boring and it was excruciating. But that's often how activism is. And I really feel like there are times when catharsis and activism just sounding off on Twitter or sounding off in a way that isn't very strategic will actually work against our strategy. And I feel like a lot of activists on Twitter err more on the side of catharsis rather on the side of strategy. Right. Uh, to the point that they don't they don't even seem to uh, recognize that there's any kind of failing in them uh, just morally posturing in such a way that makes them look better to their internet friends in, in uh, a failure to recognize that this doesn't necessarily help the situation on the ground at all. Yeah. Another uh, victory in the gay rights campaign that was a lot bigger was uh, lobbying the APA to take uh, homosexuality out of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. Absolutely, yeah. And they they protested, they they lobbied, uh, they protested at uh, conferences they had. You know, they appealed to people in the APA uh, directly, and they made it an issue. And then the APA took it out of the DSM, and it was. It's not it was not based on any new science that they had. It was the diagnosis wasn't based on science to begin with. Yeah. And it was taken out for reasons that had nothing to do with science as well. And uh, oddly enough, uh, that didn't help people to realize that uh, the DSM isn't a scientific manual, but they just <laughs> uh, applauded the APA for uh, applying their non-science to better political ends. Yeah. And and the huge cultural shift that occurred over decades as a result of that one thing is just gargantuan. <laughs> you know, it's it's huge, but it's having those specific demands. And I, I'm with you on worrying that a lot of these protest movements, that their demands are not clear and specific enough. And when that happens, it's it the that energy just diffuses and that's an enormous waste of 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 energy. Yeah, I, I do see a lot of things online where people are getting angry that uh, some of the protests that are still going on now are receiving very little coverage from the press. But that's understandable, too. It's not it's just not news anymore. After a while, you're not getting attention because it's it's an old story. And, you know, it might seem unfair given uh, how important the, the topic is. But it's still subject to those rules of supply and demand where, you know, if it's if too much of it is going on, you've just kind of inundated people with it. And that just kind of goes back to that whole issue of uh, prolonged protest uh, starting to get further and further removed from its origins and becoming its own own course of events that uh, people begin to feel a lot differently about. So I do feel that, you know, uh, it, I, I'm, again, really, uh, really kind of disappointed that I haven't seen as strong a push as I would have hoped for real change in policing. And all of a sudden, everybody kind of rallied behind uh, this idea of defund the police. And at the same time, they were saying, well, when we say defund, this is what we really mean. Yeah. And I was concerned that it didn't matter what they were saying they really meant, but it was going to get boiled down to economics and people would be satisfied with budget cuts. And I mm. feel like we've gotten to that point where people aren't talking about real tangible changes that might help. They're just talking about diminishing budgets now. And that to me is just not going to help anything. Or they are fighting over what the slogan means instead of what people actually meant by the slogan, you know? Well, and, and therefore, it only means, you know, uh, to, to lessen the budget. At the end of the day, people will, will just take it because they're still struggling with, you know, trying to figure out the economics of, of defund. Yeah. When I think, you know, I, I really think there should be, uh, you know, uh, a more multifaceted approach here that 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 confronts several things at once mm. and, and isn't going to be satisfied with with merely uh, a lowered budget. All right. So there's a, one question that got a ton of of requests was uh, so listeners really want to hear your take on this. What is your take on cancel culture? Uh, well, you see, a lot of people can be talking about a lot of different things with this. So I kind of want to define my terms carefully here. 
I, absolutely I people will uh people will decry cancel culture and then uh at the same time people will say that cancel culture isn't really a thing or then they'll uh, justify the the alleged cancellations of people by saying that they were you know uh, appropriate given the circumstances or or whatever. So if we're kind of just speaking broadly about this uh, uh, new kind of moral culture that is uh, very unforgiven, unforgiving of any type of slip ups of language or, and don't accept any type of apology, uh, do their best to take. The most offense without allowing for any remediation. I do see a problem with that. I, I, I do really think that we as progressives should do more to try to change people's minds and not try to fight this battle of attrition so vigorously where we tell people they cannot uh, be on our side. Because I really think if you don't give people flexibility to grow, uh, you're just going to force them into 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 remaining in one camp or the other and and if you can do a little bit to at least try to account for where people have come from what level of exposure they have to certain ideas what level of uh education they have or at least give people some space to uh consider another side of the argument or or really to uh to to figure out themselves where they're coming from if if they really didn't mean harm but uh uh, but but maybe said things the wrong way or whatever. I I think you know there really is a need to allow people for that kind of flexibility. Absolutely. And I I, I, uh, I don't see a whole lot of that now, and it, it's it is concerning because I, I really feel like I just feel like there are a lot of people who could be corrected, you know, and 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 it wouldn't take too terribly much. You know, there's a there's a black guy who goes around and does these YouTube videos where he meets up with white supremacists and just asks them where, where they're coming from. Why do they do this? You know, he meets up with Klansmen and things like that. And sometimes it just doesn't take much dialogue at all for him to get these people feeling, uh, you know, at least very confused and apologetic. And sometimes if you just start up up front screaming in somebody's face telling them they're wrong and there's no no correcting them ever you're only leaving them one available tribe you know to go to go to if you're gonna if you're gonna split up people's politics to get you know just in the simplistic left and right mm. uh, uh framework but uh you know the more you kind of try to uh fit somebody into the enemy's camp the more they're just gonna uh embrace that status that you've given them yeah you know, I left the internet for about a year. It was back in 2015 because my my mental health was just very, very poor. And I was like, I have to get the fuck offline and just, you know, focus on my mental health and on my new relationship with my boyfriend and just all this stuff. And so I, I took a sabbatical from the internet, logged off Twitter, logged off Facebook, and just did not get back on for a year or two years. I forget how, it was like, it was a long period of time. But then in... 2016, I got back on and, you know, started writing again, started kind of being more of a public figure again. And I was and I was just doing my same old stuff. I was I was doing the stuff that I had always done and that people enjoyed my writing previously for. That was when I was writing mostly about homosexuality in the church. And it felt it felt like I, I re-entered a completely different Internet. You know, I maybe it was just the, the spaces I was in or maybe there was a tangible shift in between 2015 and 2016. No, 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 no. I got on again in 2015. It was back. I can't remember fully, but it was it was back during that time, kind of Gamergate-ish that time. And it felt like I had gotten on to a completely different Internet and the the kindness and generosity and conversation that I had become used to just suddenly wasn't there. And before I knew it, I was dogpiled by a ton of people who called me, who were saying that I was an enabler of homophobes and that I was enabling gay suicides. And I'm like, excuse me, I am gay. What the fuck are you talking about? But it was it was just like this massive dogpile that I was suddenly at the bottom of, and I had no clue what was going on. And that was when suddenly the alt-right started making a lot of fucking sense to me. And on the one hand... Well, when people, 
Well, when people talk about cancel culture, I think what they're really concerned about are, you know, this this segment of the population that does exist that seems to feel it's a moral imperative to take the greatest offense at anything they can possibly take that offense to. Yeah. To the point where I have found that sometimes just acknowledgement of race or ethnicity will be seen as a slur when in fact it's very questionable that it is. Like look at the uh look at the Trader Joe's controversy where they had Trader Jose's and Trader Ming's. Oh, I don't even I don't to, even know about this. Yeah, yeah, it was uh uh Trader Joe's has their Trader Jose, where they have their their Mexican foods, and Trader uh-huh. Ming, where they have like their Chinese foods and that kind of thing. And uh, you know, there was this outcry that they they needed to not do this because it was racist. And I wasn't sure that it wouldn't be racist for them to do exactly the opposite of what they did mm. and make these and put these things under the Trader uh, Trader Joe's brand, you right. know. Uh, Sometimes it feels like it's just whichever way you decide and then you decide to to run with the greatest offense you can possibly take. Yeah. And that either way, either way, the company or the individual might have taken it. It was kind of a a lose lose at that end. And I I do think like these standards will change after a while. I think it's I think sometimes the uh, the concern about cultural appropriation has been has in some ways turned into the new segregationism, you know? Mm, yeah. <laughs> Sometimes that seems to go too far too. like the idea. Like I, I had, I had uh, offered a scenario a while ago in another uh, podcast I had done years ago with an, an ex-Muslim apostate. And she was asking me about uh, a similar question about cancel culture and, and or cultural appropriation. And I imagine people to picture a scenario in which you say you have a couple little girls uh, uh, who are friends, one's black and one's white, and say the, the black the black girl is putting cornrows in her, her white friend's hair. Are you going to stop them and, and say that this is inappropriate because, you know, the, the white girl has no right to wear these cornrows that her black friend is putting on her? Like, Right. Where, where do you draw those distinctions then in cultural appropriation? Like, what about that idea of like that kind of uh, cross-cultural contamination, which we shouldn't be opposed to? Mm. What about that kind of, uh, you know, cultural diversity and, and sharing and that kind of thing? And I'm sure there's arguments I could be, you know, persuaded on where it seems really inappropriate, where people feel that they're being mocked or whatever because they had no hand in it. But that's different. You know, I, I, I mean... And it's only different in the way that I don't think that that's that people are doing those kinds of nuanced judgments. They're just saying like, oh, this belongs here and this belongs squarely over here. Never shall the two mix in such a way that I think is counterproductive to uh, people really having comfortable, you know, cross-cultural relationships with each other. You know, there, there are kind of these two paradigms that I've been that I've found really helpful while thinking about this because you know I'm a I'm a minority. I have been both on the canceled and the canceller. You know, I I've been both the canceller and the canceled. And and I get it. You know, I get I get the anger. I get the rage. I get especially, you know, after a lifetime of fighting for my own, you know, for my life in the church, it felt like I just didn't have any skin on and it was just raw nerve. And anyone who laid a hand on me in any way, even if it was kind, it it activated like this tra- almost like a trauma response, just like this lifetime of compounded, subtle conflict. And then I brought that onto the Internet. And so it's like, on the one hand, I get it. I get the rage. I I get the desire to just want to shut someone up because it it hurts so much. On the other hand, I was only able to heal and become more mature in myself and as a gay man by letting go of that and by acknowledging that there will always be shitty people out there. And if I let them ruin my own peace and well-being because they exist, then um, then th- I'm letting them win. And the best thing that I can possibly do is to live as full a life as I can as a queer person, regardless of what awful people on the internet say about me. 
You know, right. I, I think I've actually witnessed people get uh, pilloried by, you know, uh, I guess what people would call cancel culture crowds on the basis of one accusation or another. When I feel like, you know, they weren't they weren't worthy of that kind of of disdain. You know, they, they may have made a mistake or whatever. Exactly. And yeah. I don't, I don't want to say a, uh, I don't want to give any specific examples because I don't want to end up defending any specific ex- examples. But, uh, but I just will say, I, I feel like I've seen this and I've seen it uh, happen in the long term enough, going back far enough, that I feel like it really has changed some of these people to the point where now I don't recognize them anymore. And I feel like they do hold reprehensible views because I feel like a lot of their views are starting to be held in absolute uh, uh, rejection to uh, the, the crowd they feel had so so shattered them previously. Exactly. And I think that's, that's what you end up doing. You know, if, if you're that un- unforgiving to people and you 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 outcast them that thoroughly and you, you insist that they're in the enemy camp, you know, even when they're not, sometime sooner or later, you're going to find that you they're there. You know, you put them there. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're, we're apes. We're social apes. Like we, we rely on a sense of status and community literally for our survival. You know, back, back when we were foraging in troops of, of apes or whatever the fuck we were, you know, being ostracized from the group was literally a death sentence. You know, it, it meant being left behind in the wilderness. And it and, still is. It still is a death sentence. And it still people is. handle that, you know? Like, yeah, like people, that, it that is training. It's more than somebody can take. It yeah. is. It is. And that, that wiring, that, that deep biological wiring hasn't fucking changed. <laughs> you know, it hasn't changed, even though we are now in the modern world on Twitter instead of you know, out in the wilderness with our ape troop. And I'm still convinced that uh, the majority of Trump voters, at least, uh, are assholes. And, and they didn't they didn't necessarily need to be turned into assholes. Right. But it is something to be noted that it seems like half the time, if not more, they seem to be holding the views they hold uh, just because they get a perverse joy of really pissing off those libtards. Yep. You know, and uh, yeah, that's that's where you place people sometimes. If uh, if they if you make their priority, you know, getting out of your social eco social ecosystem. Yep. And and you know, one of the things that I have found personally very helpful in navigating just all of this is kind of these two axioms that I keep reminding myself of. One, replace outrage with curiosity. And so, you know, I try to when I when I start experiencing that outrage, even if it is appropriate, but very often when it first flares up, I don't know if it's appropriate or not. You know, maybe this person just slipped up and said something stupid on Twitter. Maybe maybe this was actually a horrible thing caught on camera or maybe it wasn't like the Covington High School incident that happened last year where and that's a whole other story. People can look that up if they're curious about that, regardless of. Just in every situation, when I feel that outrage start building up, I'm like, okay, I'm going to breathe through this, and I'm going to to deliberately become curious about this situation. And that curiosity, taking that next step, n- never works against us. Like that, taking that next step to be curious about the situation that makes us so angry, that will never work against me. That will only ever benefit me. And then the other axiom is reminding myself that conflict is not abuse. There's a book by that title, Conflict is Not Abuse, and how a lot of minority communities, and I consider myself part of this problem, is we have this tendency to see certain conflicts that that naturally arise as forms of abuse, and this creates a very toxic atmosphere. And so when someone disagrees with me, when someone even intensely disagrees with me, to deliberately put aside the idea of this being an attack. And um, and that means that I might be able to reason with that person more fairly. And so I find those two kind of axioms really helpful in navigating my life on the internet. So one last question we're we're over an hour and a half and and so we should probably wrap this up soon um but one last question it's a big one 
comes from, let me see, where did, where did it go? It comes from Apollyon Ammon on Twitter. What is your vision for the future of the modern satanic movement? Where do we go next? Well, I really think it's difficult to map that out sp- explicitly with some kind of blueprint that's uh, that we can't deviate from and that would kind of go against our our general ethic anyways like everything we have to be uh fluid in and be willing to 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 change with uh with the reality and the time so i think my goals are more general in the sense that i really want us to develop a lasting sustaining community and as an organization have the processes in place that you know, allow a system of checks and balances to keep us from going against our ethic of anti-authoritarianism, but also be well-regulated enough that our membership can be sure that we don't bring disgrace upon them or run rogue in some direction one way or the other, that they can't rely on us or, or, you know, are taking a a heavy risk and identifying with us. So, you know, we really wanted to build that kind of stability in place and, have a lot more available options, I think, for people to engage with the community. And to that end, we've been developing our own kind of platforms for people to communicate on. Since COVID has started, we've been developing a virtual headquarters for the Salem property, which has turned into a much kind of bigger project now. We're hoping to roll it out in October, Mm. um, where, you know, it's a much more... uh, uh, convenient and kind of organic uh, online environment for people to interact and see presentations and stuff like that. And so we we, we know our population is going to keep growing. And uh, at some point, we might even have a uh, legal victory in the courts. And we can only just kind of wait and see, um, especially right now, which direction we're going in when it comes to how relevant our fight against the theocrats is going to be mm. um, in the near future. This election really is, uh, it, I mean, they say it every election, but this one is a really important election. And I think the most we can really hope for out of this election is to at least have somebody in office who actually understands the limits of the authority of that office and what the office is supposed to do and how the government's supposed to operate and what the laws are, uh, especially in regards to uh, the First Amendment and Establishment Clause places uh, uh, cases, because uh, you're having federal judges being put into position who might themselves not have any understanding of that, might not have any respect for the laws that we leverage to assert our equality as a religion. And if we have to deal with four more years of that, I think we're going to see substantial changes to what it means to be an American in the United States. And we're going to see a real uh, rolling back of certain principles that we thought were entrenched in, in the in the makeup of the United States. So, you know, those are the concerns. But the guarantee is that uh, one way or the other, the Satanic Temple will still be around. Well, I think that's a great note to end on. And uh, thanks so much for hanging out. This has been great. Thank you. And uh, yeah, you're welcome back anytime. I'm available most anytime you want. <laughs> great. Well, people love people love these conversations that we have on Sacred Tension. And so if you're down, I'm thinking, you know, once every every four or six months having you back on. If, if you're okay with that, if you're cool. Yeah, no, that, that works for me. Great. I'll be your recurring guest. Yes, you and, and we'll, you know, and our conversations always go for like Joe Rogan podcast levels of, of time. So, you know, we can have like our, our uh, you know, m- uh, long conversation. It doesn't, they don't have to be long, but they often run long. So we can have you on, you know, every few months or so. Um, people seem to really enjoy them. Perfect. Well, I'm glad they do. Awesome. All right. Well, that is it for this show. The music is by The Jelly Rocks and Eleventy-Seven. You can find them on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to music. The artwork is by Ramakrishna Das. And this show is written, produced, and edited by me, Stephen Bradford Long. And it is a production of Rock Candy Media. As always, hail Satan. And we'll see you next week. 
Commitment to sparkle 